0: We're so glad you're here tonight and on Sunday nights we're studying the book of John. So if you have a copy of God's Word, look with us to the book of John, 4th book of the New Testament. John chapter 12 tonight as we continue looking in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 12 and we'll begin reading with verse 20. As we said last week, in the first 11 chapters of the book of John is the first 33 years of Jesus' life. And now the rest of the book is looking at just one week. Jesus has entered into into Jerusalem. It's Passover time. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to die. Again, please understand, Jesus laid down his life for us. And so the enemies are trying to kill him. They're trying to find cause. They they have asked people, if you know where he is, let us know. And and Jesus comes into town, to Jerusalem, in a parade. And now we pick up the story in verse 20. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it was saying that it had thundered, Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And the crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And so Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Pray with me. Father in heaven, tonight as we look into your word, Father, there is so much here. And Father, we need your guidance. and Father, we need you to be our teacher. And so, Father, I pray you open our spiritual eyes that, Father, we may see you. And, Father, as we look at this passage, we may understand why Jesus came, but also, Father, how we are to live. And, Father, we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> this is a strange passage. If you've been reading along with us in, the, in this passage, and this comes out of the blue. The passage began in verse 20. Now, some Greeks from the West, that, that's where they came from, from the West came and they said, sir, we would see Jesus. Now, in that day, the Greeks were considered the intellectual elite. It is fitting that when Jesus was born, wise men from the east came looking for him, and a few days before Jesus died, wise men from the west came looking for him. And they ask a question: "Sir, we would see Jesus." Now this is strange. I mean, you think about what we just read a few weeks ago: how Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. It's the Passover. You were really unexpected and now to start talking about the Greeks. I mean, here are the Greeks in Jerusalem at the Jewish feast. Now, probably they're Gentiles who were proselytes to the Judaism. That's probably why they're there. But John has laid the foundation. This is the Passover, and now he introduces the Greeks. It's also a strange passage because it says we would see Jesus, and then Jesus starts talking, and they don't mention the Greeks anymore. Did you notice that? We don't know what happened. Jesus. Probably granted their request, we really aren't told. But he takes this moment to talk about the cross. He takes this moment to turn the corner to the cross. Now, the Greeks come to Philip because Philip is a Greek name. And they want to see Jesus. And they talk about who are these people, who are these people. Oh, that guy's name's Philip. Oh, Philip, that's a Greek name. Let's go to Philip. Go to Philip. Philip doesn't know what to do. So what does Philip do? He goes to Andrew. Why Andrew? Every time you see Andrew in the Bible, what is he doing? Bringing people to Jesus. So Philip goes to Andrew and says, I got some Greeks over here. They, they want to talk to Jesus. And so Andrew says, well, let's go. And they go introduce him to Jesus. In Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the moment. The hour has come. This is the moment. This is the pivotal moment. I mean, up till now, throughout the book of John, we've seen it over and over. Jesus kept saying, my hour is not yet. My hour has not come. Remember Jesus, John chapter 2, the, the wedding feast. His mother asked him to do something. And Jesus said, mother, my hour has not yet come. Then John chapter 7, his brothers, who, by the way, did not believe he was the Christ, they inform him that uh, that maybe he should go somewhere else, and Jesus said, "Up, oh, my hour hasn't come." Then later in John chapter seven, again, the Jews were trying to seize him, but they couldn't, and the Bible says his hour had not come. And then John chapter eight, verse twenty, Jesus is teaching, and the enemies wanted to seize him again, and the Bible says his hour had not come. And so now in chapter twelve. The Greeks come and they want to see Jesus. And now Jesus says, finally, look, now the hour has come. Why? What difference does it make that the Greeks are coming for Jesus to say, the hour has come? Because now we're beginning to see the turning point. Jesus has come and the Jews are beginning to reject him. And now he's going to open up for everyone. Jesus said, I come for you. And they're saying, well, no, we don't really want you. They're going to reject him. This is the turning point. Jesus has come for all people. Salvation would now be proclaimed to the whole world, not just to the Jews, but to the Greeks and the Gentiles. And and, and what John does is brilliant because he contrasts the Pharisees with the Greeks. Did you notice that? the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they they didn't like Jesus at all. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And so here come the Greeks, we we would see Jesus. Then the irony is, as Jesus is coming into the city, remember what the Pharisees said? Look, the whole world has gone after him. So what does John do? And some Greeks wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That phrase, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. I did a series, as Mark said, a series on some of the names of God. But there are some names of Jesus. The number one title in the New Testament for Jesus is Christ. That's the Hebrew word, the Messiah. The Hebrew concept of Messiah. The second word used of Jesus the most is Lord. The third most is the Son of Man. Is used 85 times in the New Testament. It's the number one phrase Jesus used of himself. In fact, of the 85 times the Son of Man is used, Jesus used it 84 times. The 85th time occurs in the book of Acts when Stephen is describing Jesus. Now, what does that mean, Son of Man? Now, a lot of of people like to take that and say, well, he's talking about his humanity. That's part of it, but actually it means more of his divinity. Jesus is referring to a passage found in the book of Daniel, back in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a prophecy. Daniel has this dream. He says the Son of Man would come before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God. And here's this image. There is God the Ancient of Days, he wants to give his power, his dominion, his glory, his kingdom to the Son of Man. And so this scene is in heaven in verse 9. And the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, is sitting on the throne. He's attended by thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. This is a courtroom, a time of judgment. And the Ancient of Days wants to give the Son of Man this authority. And the Son of Man enters. Jesus said, I am the Son of Man. The Jews have been waiting for hundreds of years for this King, this Son of Man, the one who would come in the clouds, the one who would come before the Ancient of Days. And Jesus is saying, the hour is now for the Son of Man to be glorified. And after he says this, Jesus gives us three principles that we need in order to save our lives. Three principles for us to save our lives. First principle is the principle of sacrifice. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit Jesus says it's like a seed a seed that's in the ground and dies it produces fruit again throughout Jesus ministry he knew he was going to die on the cross the cross was never a surprise in fact over and over he kept talking about he was moving toward that moment when he would come to Jerusalem he would die on the cross He talked about it. He gave hints about it. Later, the disciples began to think back on those statements and they got it. He was going to die on Calvary. He was going to die the same place that Isaac was going to sacrifice his son, uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. He knew where he was going. And Jesus knew that he would die during the Passover when thousands and thousands and thousands of Passover lambs were being sacrificed. He was going to be sacrificed for us. And now Jesus is going to use the metaphor of a seed uh, for us to understand. A seed may be the most powerful thing in the world. Something very small. But I want you to consider how powerful the seed is. Life in that seed will be released the moment it is planted. There is life in that seed. I mean, archaeologists found uh, in the... King Tut, believe it or not. It was actually King Tut. They found his grave. And they found seeds. 3,000-year-old seeds in the tomb area. They planted the seeds after 32 centuries. And they grew. There is power. There is life in seed. In fact, in Norway, and I'm I'm going to to mispronounce it, it's called Svalbard. Svalbard... Is a global seed vault is near the Arctic Circle I didn't even know this they have a 30 million dollar vault where they keep seeds in case there's ever a global famine or global disaster they understand seeds are life there's almost 1 million seeds in airtight bags and crates in that vault a temperature of minus 18 degrees centigrade. They're saving the seed. In case something happened, they said, we understand the seed have life. Do you realize the power of a seed? I mean, consider the pumpkin seed. This is Thanksgiving season. A pumpkin seed is so light. They say it takes about 75 of those pumpkin seeds to weigh one ounce, but you take a pumpkin seed and you plant it and it dies. And what happens, it will ingest so much moisture nutrients that it will grow to enormous size. And in fact, every year there are contests who can grow the largest pumpkin. There's one place in New England, somebody a couple of years ago, they grew a pumpkin 2,500 pounds. Now think about that. That's 122 million times the weight of a pumpkin seed. Every pumpkin has about 500 seeds. In other words, the pumpkin can produce all the seeds that Produce 2.5 billion times the weight of a single seed. That is the power of the seed. And Jesus is using that image. He says there is life when there is death. By dying like a seed, Jesus is going to produce fruit. When Jesus is going to lay down his life, when he's going to be crucified on that cross, he literally is going to die. He's going to be planted in a tomb, and then he will burst forth on three days later. And from that, he is going to produce life. In fact, right now, about 3 billion people profess Christ. That's a lot of fruit. But there's also a spiritual application to us. You and I will never see fruit in our lives. We will never enjoy life if we're not willing to die to self. And that's the next principle. Principle number two, there's the principle of surrender. Verse 25. He continues to say, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus says, like a buried seed, we must be willing to die to self in order to produce. Now, paradox is a statement which at first glance seems to be uh, contradictory. Until you start analyzing it. For, for example, modern paradox is social media disconnects us from others kind of paradox. Jesus is the master of the paradox. That's the paradox in verse 25. The one who loves his life, that's the person who's going to lose it. The one who doesn't care about his life, who hates his life, he's going to gain it. Now, what does he mean? What does he mean, hate our life? Now, he's not talking about hating yourself. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about hating your physical life. Look at that verse again. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it life eternal. Three times he uses the word life. Two times the word life means your soul. The last word means your eternal life. Jesus is saying you must love eternal life greater than anything else. That's what he's saying. We're not to hate our physical life. We're not to hate ourselves. We are creations of God. He said what we should hate is that self-centered, egotistical life that's all about us. That's what we need to hate. We are to hate the sinful life that we live. We'd hate that. And here's the paradox. Jesus said the way to keep your life, you got to hate it. You got to hate what you're doing to yourself. And this is just not those few people that that go out in the mission field that turn turn their back on everything. No, he's talking about all of us. He's talking about all of us. I mean, he said it over and over. In the book of Luke, Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life of me will save it. You see, he's given a contrast between two different people. There's one person, life is all about them. The other person, life is about God. The person, life is all about them. You hear it all the time. You, you hear it all everywhere. You know, uh, you only live once in life. You know, your life is on your own. Look out for number one is that old, old psalm from Frank Sinatra I did it my way. The mantra I hear more than anything else is, What about my happiness? I hear that more than anything else in, in the world. What about my happiness? And Jesus said, Listen, it's not about you. It's about me. And if you're going to focus on you only, you're going to lose your life. You focus on me, you'll gain it. The recipe for a wasted life is to focus only on you. That's what he's saying. If you want to discover the secret of meaningful life, if you want to discover the meaningful purpose of life, you must deny yourself daily and come after Jesus. So. Paul in the book of Galatians chapter 2 says, For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, for Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. I don't want you to notice how many times Paul said I in that. You know what he's saying? He said, I, 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 I've died. We all struggle with the I problem. We all do. I mean, it's all about us. We, we struggle with this daily. You know, someone has noticed, you know, what's in the middle of the word sin, I, what's in the middle of the word pride, I, what's in the middle of the word guilt, I. It's all about us. That's our central problem, it's us. He said if you want to gain your life, you've got to give your life over and give it to God. We are to die in Christ. If you are a believer, you die in Christ. You know what that means? You can't insult a dead man. Why get upset? You can't verbally assault a dead man. He's not going to get upset. You see, the moment we start realizing that we're dead in Christ, you you can't entice a dead man to temptation, he's dead. The Bible says we are to die in Christ, and that's how we gain life. A real disciple is a dead man walking, spiritual dead man walking. He has died to the charms of the world, the claims of the world, to the lust of the flesh, and he's following God. That's what Jesus is saying. You may be here tonight, and you think, well, what does it mean not to love your life in this world means two things loving your life in this world means you only look at this life as it okay that's what it means that's why jesus said in this world if you live as this is the only world you have you're going to fail i mean did did paul enjoy everything in life when he was suffering being beaten and thrown in prison and the shipwrecks no but this wasn't all to life do the martyrs enjoy all their life as they were being tortured and having their heads cut off or their bodies burned for Christ? No, but they knew another life was coming. And Jesus said, "This is not the end. This is another life coming. That's what we look toward. Remember the story Jesus told about the farmer, the farmer who wanted to get more uh, products and he built bigger barns and and, and Jesus just told the story and he said, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. You, You're prepared for this world but you haven't prepared for the next world. You see, there are those in this world, they live as if this life is all there is and their aim is to uh, accumulate as much money or as much stuff as they can or their aim is to be happy all the time and they are miserable because that's impossible so jesus said loving your life in this world means living life with only this in view the second thing he means when he says that loving your life in this world means living for the same things other people live for when we start living like the world we start living like the world i mean the world john says that you know do not love the thing do not love the world nor the things of the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And it passes away. In 1981, there was a man flown to a remote part of Alaska to photograph the tundra. Incredible story. He wrote it, most of it down. He had his photo equipment, about 500 rolls of film, several firearms, 100... 1,400 pounds of provision, he made copious notes in his diary about everything he observed, very detailed, talk about the wildlife. And then something happened in the diary. It turned into a pathetic record of a nightmare because in August he wrote these words, I think I should have had more foresight about arranging my departure I soon will find out, because he waited and waited, and no one came. No one came to his rescue. In November, he died in a nameless valley by nameless lake, 225 miles northeast of Fairbanks. There was an investigation. They found the diary, that's how we know the story. This man who planned everything for the moment forgot to make one preparation to be flown out. He forgot to prepare to leave. Now, you may be here tonight or online, you're thinking, well, that's very short-sighted, but don't we all do that? I mean, how many people in the world, they're living their lives without making any plans about a departure from this world? You know, the statistics of death is pretty impressive. It's one for one. And yet we don't think about it. And Jesus is telling us you have to understand the principle of surrender. Third, there's the principle of submission. Verse 27. He said, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name i I love this passage because here's jesus and he's being open with us he said look i'm upset i'm troubled i'm going to the cross now again i i believe he's thinking more about having the sins placed upon him that's what was troubling him the most but he said what should i do should i go to the father and say father save me well why that's why i came here and so what does he say verse 28 He says, instead, I'll say, Father, glorify your name. That's why I came. Father, glorify your name. Whenever we are confused, whenever we don't know what to do, whenever we are hurting, that should be our prayer. Father, I don't have a clue about this, but glorify your name. Father, I'm hurting, but glorify your name. Jesus is showing us this prayer of submission because he was honoring God, and the Heavenly Father responded, I mean, how would Jesus submit? He said, I am going to glorify my Father. I will submit. Look what he says down in in verse 31. Well, Look at verse 34, how he submitted. He said, the crowd answered him, we have heard of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up. I am going to submit to God. I'm to going to glorify Him. By the way, do you realize what this is saying? This is saying something we miss. This is saying something a lot of us miss. I mean, because how many times you say, why did Jesus go to the cross? The number one answer is what? For us, right? I said it this morning. Yeah, the, we say, well, Jesus went to the cross for us. What does he say there? I went to the cross to glorify the Father. Christ came to save us, that's true. But the main reason Jesus came to die on the cross to glorify the Father, he was willing to sacrifice himself, the agony of that cross to glorify the Father's name. The cross showed the angels and the principalities and heavenly places along with the whole world, the unfathomable love and the grace of God. Jesus was willing to bear the horrible punishment because he loved us, because we were sinners, but he was glorifying the Father. He was glorifying the Father to show the world because God is, has justice and God is holy. That's what he's saying. And so many times we miss this as we tell people why Jesus went to the cross. Yes, he came for us, but he was glorifying the Father. So what was the result? Look at verse 31. Because he went to the Father, because he went to the cross... He said, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus said, three things are going to happen when I go to the cross. When I don't go on the cross, the world is going to face judgment. Number two, Satan is going to lose. He's going to be cast out. Number three, people will be drawn to me. I know what you're thinking. Well, wait a minute. I don't see that. Where's the judgment? Because Jesus died on the cross, judgment is coming. Because Jesus down on the cross, Satan will be cast out. Satan has no power over Christians. He said, well, it says all people. What he's talking about, all, all kinds, all types will be drawn to him. Just as the Greeks came, just as the Jews came, later in the book of Acts, we see all the people group coming to Jesus. And that word "draws" the same word used in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. It means pulling them in. Jesus. Said, so if you want to have a life, you got to submit. Just like Jesus submitted to his heavenly father. A few months ago, Sunday morning, I mentioned Eric Little from Chariots of Fire. Maybe remember the story. Eric Little, that movie, Chariots Fire, won an Academy Award in 1981. I, I still think it's a boring movie. I apologize, but it is. But it's a great story. Eric Little was that young Scottish preacher. Could run like no one in that world could. In the 1924 Olympics, he was supposed to run, but his race was going to run on Sunday. and He refused to run on Sunday. He said, that's the day of rest. I will not run. He trained for that 100-meter dash. Wouldn't run. They begged him. His country asked him to do it. He said, no, I will honor God. I will not run on Sunday. Instead, they entered him in the 400-meter run. He had never trained before, never trained. for the race, a trainer from the American team handed him a piece of paper with a Bible verse, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 30. It says, those that honor me, I will honor. And you know the story, he ran and won the gold medal. In fact, he set an Olympic record. When I told the story in August, I stopped there and I said, but that's not the most powerful part of his story. Here's the most powerful part of the story. The next year, Little went to China, 1932. His parents were missionaries. He was ordained as a minister. He married in 1933. And in China, he started traveling on bicycle, ministering in the name of Jesus. His decision to go to some parts of China, some some inner Uh, Parts of the isolated community forced him to leave his wife and children behind. People thought he was crazy, but he wanted to tell others about Christ. In March of 1943, little among other Americans and British citizens were arrested and thrown into a Japanese prison camp. We didn't know the rest of the story until 2008. 2008, right before Beijing Olympics, Chinese authorities revealed that Little had refused an opportunity to leave the camp. British authorities or the Japanese authority made a deal to switch prisoners. With Churchill's permission, Little gave up his place for a pregnant woman. And he stayed in the prison camp. Just months before the war was over, Eric Little died in the prison camp. At age 43, on February 20th, 1945, he wrote a letter, his last words. And in that letter, he simply said at the very end of the letter, to summarize his life, it's full surrender. The moment he died... He received something greater than the Olympic gold medal. He received the crown of righteousness from his heavenly father. Little knew what it meant to follow Jesus. You see, the world thought he was a fool for not running on Sunday. And the f- world thought he was a fool for going to the mission field of China. And the world thought he was a fool leaving his his wife to go tell people about Jesus. And the world thought he was a fool for not leaving the prison. But it was full surrender. He was following Jesus wherever Jesus led. He understood this principle. What about you? Are you following where Jesus leads? Would you stand and bow your heads? If you're watching online, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you would text the word today at 270-398-5005 and a minister will give you a call. If you're here tonight, if you've never given your life to Christ, tonight's the night. It means you're going against the world. The world won't understand. It means you accept Christ by admitting you're a sinner. You come to Christ saying, Lord, I can't save myself. I have messed up. It means you say to God, Lord, I believe. I believe that Jesus did die for my sins 2,000 years ago. I believe he died and was buried. And on the third day, he arose. I believe he is the son of man. He's the son of God. He's the king of kings. And I confess, I give him everything. I'm not coming to give you 90%. I'm not coming to give you 95%. I'm not even coming to give you 99%. Lord, I'm coming to give you everything in my life. Full surrender. I'm willing to die for you. Will you make that decision tonight? Father, speak to us now. Help us to hear the words of our Lord Jesus as he's calling us, drawing us, to him and father we understand there are many things in the bible we do not understand and father maybe in heaven you'll explain it to us but father what we do know is this you loved us enough to send your son to die for us so that we can have eternal life and this world is not all there is there's another world waiting for us And father we believe that That's why we do what we do. Father, that's why we believe what we believe. I ask you now, Father, help us to live that way. That we will live as if we know there's another world waiting for us. The one you prepared. In Jesus' name, amen.